you have your Bible here today, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Now in 1553, one of England's most notorious monarchs took the throne. She was Mary I of the house of Tudor. Most people today know her as Bloody Mary because during her short five-year reign, she had 280 religious dissenters burned at the stake. It's important for you to know that prior to her rule as Queen of England, that that country had separated from the Catholic Church when her father, who was Henry VIII, established the Church of England. And there's a long and storied history there that I don't have time to go into, but when Mary took power, she decided that she was going to reinstitute Catholicism across Great Britain. And as she did, many of the Protestant leaders, many of the men of God who believed in the Word of God, stood in opposition. And two of those famous martyrs who died under Bloody Mary was a preacher named Hugh Latimer and another man named Nicholas Ridley. In fact, Mary uh, promptly had them arrested and imprisoned in the dreaded Tower of London. And you might be wondering, well, what was the crimes of these men? No, they weren't thieves. No, they weren't murderers. Uh, nor did they plot in conspiracy against the government. But these men of God believed that the common man should have access to the Scriptures in the English language. And in those days, that was crime. That was punishable by death. They also refused the rule of the Pope, and so that made them outlaws. On October the 16th, 1555, these two men, Latimer and Ridley, were brought into the courtyard there in Oxford, England. They were asked by a presiding Catholic official, Will you recant of your heretical views? And here's what Nicholas Ridley said. So long as there is breath in my body, I will not deny my Lord Jesus and His truth. May God's will be done in me. And so with that, these men were shackled to a stake. There was wood piled at their feet. Uh, Ridley's brother was allowed to take a cask of gunpowder and attach it to the necks of these men so that as the flames rose, death would happen more quickly. And here's the way Fox's Book of Martyrs narrates the grisly scene. As they brought a lighted torch and laid it at Mr. Ridley's feet, Mr. Latimer turned to his friend and said, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And it is said that as the flames torched these two men, Dr. Ridley could be heard with these last words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so these two bold witnesses, these men of God, died believing that one day there would be a brighter day for the church in England. Now, I mentioned the example of Latimer and Ridley today because it is a fitting picture of two prophetic witnesses that we see God will send to the earth in a future period of time we know as the tribulation. And like Latimer and Ridley, these two prophetic preachers who will come on the scene will stand for the gospel against a tyrannical dictator, and they too shall be martyred for their beliefs. Now, as we've been studying the book of Revelation, we have seen 
that the seals of judgment have been fulfilled. Six of the seven trumpet judgments have happened, and all manner of chaos, war, bloodshed, famine, plagues, even demonic hordes have tortured those earth dwellers during the time of the tribulation. And the church, meanwhile, has been raptured out. All the salt and the light of God's people has been taken out of the world before that terrible time of judgment. But the good news is today that not only will the church be absent from the world when this begins to happen, but we see that God is not going to leave the unbelieving masses without hope or without a means to turn to Him before it is too late. And Revelation 11 talks about these two witnesses that come to the earth during the tribulation to proclaim God's gospel in a time of woe and wrath and to turn people's hearts to the Savior. Now, before introducing these two witnesses, our narrator, John, sets the stage for their arrival. And our camera lens zooms in on the most hotly contested piece of real estate on planet earth. It's the city of Jerusalem. And so we see in verses 1 and 2, if you're taking notes today, the temple measured. The temple measured. Verse 1 says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you know that there are five temples mentioned in the Word of God. The first was built by Solomon. The glory of Solomon was that he got to fulfill his father David's dream and build a house befitting Almighty God. But that temple was destroyed in the year 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came and laid siege to Jerusalem. They burnt down the temple. They deported many of the Jerusalem citizens. But when the people came back from their 70 years of Babylonian exile, a man named Zerubbabel led the charge to rebuild that temple. And so he built what was known as the second temple, and then at the time of Christ, just before Jesus was to enter the world, a man named Herod the Great ruled over the Jews, and he did a massive renovation to the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, he enlarged it to about 140,000 square meters, or about 20 football fields. But of course, that temple didn't last forever. Herod's temple, we know from history, was destroyed in the year 70 AD when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem under the General Titus, and they turned one stone upon another. By the way, Jesus predicted that event about 40 years before it happened in Matthew 24 at the Olivet Discourse. And so for the past 1900 plus years, the Jews have been without a temple to call their own in the city of Jerusalem. What has stood atop the Temple Mount in Jerusalem since about the year 691 A.D. has been the Muslim Dome of the Rock. And anytime you see a silhouette picture of the cityscape of Jerusalem, you see the Dome of the Rock sitting there. All that remains today of the Old Temple is the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, and you see many Orthodox Jews there gathered praying uh, for 
the peace of Israel and for their Messiah to come and for the temple to be rebuilt. So those are the three Jewish temples of history. Now when we read this passage in Revelation 11, it speaks of another temple to come. In fact, the Bible tells us that there'll be two temples built in the end times. The first was here in Revelation 11. That's the tribulation temple. If you were to read over in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 talks about Messiah's temple, which will be built during the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ here on the earth. It will be a center of world worship. But we see here that in Revelation 11, John is told to measure the temple standing during the tribulation. Now, that is symbolic of two things. First off, possession, and then secondly, evaluation. And by measuring this temple, God is claiming ownership over His people and over that property. Do you still know that God is ruling and reigning? God is sitting on the throne. God still owns every square inch of planet earth. Yes, He has given it over for a time to the enemy, but the day is coming when He reclaims it all. The Bible says that the earth is His and the fullness thereof. And so we see here that God is claiming ownership over that property. Just as you would have a land surveyor come out and survey your land before you would build a house on it to appraise it and to know the length and the width of it. God is doing that. He's also taking a spiritual inventory of the hearts of the people who worship there. Do you know that God looks on the heart? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Do you know that God knows your heart when you come into this place today? He knows the problems that you've come with. He knows about the sin in your life. He knows the things that are weighing heavily on your mind today. God knows your heart just as He will know the parts of the people on the earth at this time. And so what we see here is this is important because it tells us that as the temple is being measured, that God is not done with His people Israel. God has not washed His hands of the house of Abraham. Israel has not been replaced by the church. All the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have not been given to the church. God still has a plan, a destiny, and a program for the Israelite people, and it's going to be fulfilled. Now, the tribulation temple, as we read here about it, will not be standing for very long. Notice the Bible tells us that the outer court is given over to the Gentiles or the nations he says, for a period of 42 months. Now that corresponds to three and a half years of the last part of that seven-year tribulation period. And you should know that besides Revelation 11, there are three other prophetic passages that mention a tribulation temple. Daniel 9.27 talks about it. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 24, verse 15. Paul spoke about it in 2 Thessalonians 2. And each of those passages tell us that this temple that's going to be built by the Jews during the tribulation period is actually going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. In fact, in the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to turn his back. He's going to destroy the covenant that he has made with God's people, the Jews. And from that temple in Jerusalem, he is going to declare himself to be a god. Now you should know, that there is today growing among the Jewish people a desire and a movement to see their temple be rebuilt. Yes, even right now. In fact, the, God is going to use all of this. The rebuilding of the temple, the Antichrist, the words and the works of the two witnesses which we're about to see. God is going to use all of this to turn the hearts of His people back toward Him. 
You see, right now, the average Jew, the Orthodox Jew, doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They don't recognize Christ as Savior. But friend, when the earth begins to be turned upside down and God's judgment begins to fall and things begin happening in the prophetic program, did you know the scales are going to fall off the eyes of the Israelites and they're going to see Jesus as the true fulfillment of all the law and the prophets? In fact, I was reading this week from prophecy buff Mark Hitchcock. And in his book, he mentions a 2009 poll that was conducted among the Jewish people of Israel. And the survey asked respondents whether they wanted to see a temple rebuilt. That is, Jews living in their homeland today. And do you know the results were surprising? Nearly two-thirds, 64% desired to see a new temple built in their lifetime. Now, you see that picture up on the screen. The rebuilding of the Jewish temple is not just talk. It's actually a very well-organized plan that is already being implemented by the Jews in Israel today. You see the groups like the Temple Institute or another group called the Temple Treasures. You know, they have already begun manufacturing the implements for worship. This is the menorah that will stand one day in the future temple. They've already made it. It's ready. All the Jewish people are waiting is for the green light to be given and the door to be opened for them to build their temple. And they already have harps for the musicians. They already have the implements of worship. There are men right now in Jerusalem who are studying to be a part of the priesthood so that they can resume their sacrificial system. And what this means, friends, is that the enthusiasm among the Jewish people to see the temple rebuilt is a sign of the prophetic season that we are in. I got news for you, friend. God's right on time. The schedule of the prophetic program is happening. And listen, prophecies like Ezekiel 36, verse 24, prophecies like Isaiah 11, 11 and 12, where God talks about gathering the Jewish people from every corner of the earth and bringing them into their ancient homeland that was given to Abraham. We are literally seeing those things fulfilled right now. And friend, it's exciting to be living in the times that we are living because all you have to do is open your Bible and see how God is bringing it to pass in our time, in our age. We don't know how it's going to happen. But one way or another, God's Word is going to be fulfilled and the temple will be rebuilt, just as this passage predicts it. Now, just think. In 1945, the world was just coming off the heels of World War II and the Holocaust. It was unimaginable then that the Jewish people who had just suffered through the devastation of the Holocaust would have their own nation. But yet in three years after that, 1948, the modern state of Israel was reborn. And then in 1967, it looked like Israel was about to be wiped off the map. All the Arab nations came against Israel and God's people, and yet to the astonishment of the world, Israel defeated the Arab uh, who came after them, and they reunited Jerusalem with the old city of David. And friend, the, the nation of Israel is flourishing today. And it's all about the times and the seasons that we're living in. God's Word is true. Now, we begin by talking about the temple being measured. But now, number two, I want you to notice the two messengers. John changes his focus now in verses 3 through 14, and he speaks about two powerful preachers who will launch their ministry in Jerusalem. First off, we see the personalities 
of these witnesses. Verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone should harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Wow. The symbolism that John uses here to describe these witnesses is taken directly from the book of Zechariah chapter 4. He describes these witnesses as olive trees and lampstands. And that's significant. Because like lampstands, these two witnesses will shine in the darkness of the tribulation. They will expose the sin and the perversity and the depravity of mankind during that time. But then they will also be like olive trees. And we know that olive trees produce that fruit, olives that can be made into olive oil. And olive oil in the Scripture is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So just like olive trees, they will continually be filled or anointed by God's Spirit to carry out the mission that God has given them. Now in that passage that we read, you should know that this section of Scripture is kind of a theological battleground. Over the years there have been many theologians and commentators who have debated about the exact identity of these witnesses. Now, most competent scholars tell us today that these witnesses are the second comings of Moses and Elijah. And we have some good reasons to believe that, and let me lay that out for you right now. Malachi, he actually predicted that Elijah would return to the earth before the second coming of Christ. In fact, some of the last words that were written in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, some have read that and think, well, that was fulfilled already by John the Baptist. While we know that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, according to Luke 1.17, we know that John was not the ultimate fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy because you remember that when John was baptizing in the Jordan, some Jews came down to investigate what he was doing, some Pharisees, and they asked John, they said, John, are you Elijah? And in John 1.21, he said, no. So we know that this prophecy still is to be fulfilled of the coming of Elijah. Now, these witnesses, we see, also have some special powers granted to them. We read in that passage that they had the ability to withhold rain and command fire from heaven. Now, who do you know from the Old Testament had that ability? Elijah. We also know that they have the ability from Revelation 11 to turn the waters into blood. Now, which great man of the Old Testament did that? Moses, standing on the banks of the Nile River in Exodus 7, the first plague that God did against that nation was turning the Nile River into blood. Now, we've mentioned briefly here the duration of their ministry as 1,260 days or three and a half years. Did you know that's the same exact time period that Elijah's drought lasted in the book of 1 Kings? 
And then we also know that when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, there He was glorified before His disciples that two witnesses appeared there before Him in resurrection glory. And who were they, class? Moses and Elijah. You can read that in Matthew chapter 17. They represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. And how fitting it will be again that they appear in the end times preaching in the city of Jerusalem to the Jewish people. They'll be preaching the law, which convicts man of his sin, which shows him how he falls short of the glory of God. And then they will also be prophesying the coming of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the same message that we have here today, isn't it? It's the same message that every preacher has to be faithful to. That man is a great sinner, but praise God, Jesus is a great Savior. And yes, He died, and He shed His blood for you and I, but He rose again. And friend, the best news of all, He's coming back. Are you ready? Do you know Him today? Is He your Savior? Are you washed in the blood? If the cry of command is given and the trumpet is blown and the shout takes place... Friend, are you going to be going up with the church or are you going to be left behind? It could happen today, couldn't it? It can happen at the midnight hour or noon. Are you ready to go up, up, and away and see the Lord? You ought to be ready. If you don't, you should know today that God loves you. That God wants to save you. That Jesus hung between heaven and earth on an old Roman cross, shed His blood for your sin and my sin so that you could be saved, redeemed, washed clean, made anew, and given a transformed heart to live after Him. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, the Bible says. And if you don't know this precious Savior that I'm talking about today, friend, today could be your day of salvation. So we see the personalities of these two witnesses. I hope we're having fun because this passage gets very interesting as we continue on. Notice the protection of these two witnesses coming on in verse 5. We'll read it again. Verse 5 says this, And if anyone could harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Wow, what a passage. This verse always reminds me of the courageous, pioneering missionary David Livingston. If you want a blessing, read a biography of this intrepid man. But the Bible says in, in this verse 5 that the two witnesses are going to be divinely protected. And David Livingston had a great comment about that. During his expeditions across Africa, he suffered tremendously. He was at one time mauled by a lion. He had bouts with malaria. There were hostile African tribes that wanted to kill him. He had horrific ulcers on his feet from walking those long miles. And he had constant struggles with what doctors now think it was IBS. But on one of his fundraising trips back to England, a reporter asked David Livingston, said, Sir, how do you keep going back and facing all of this adversity and sickness and potential death? And David Livingston gave a great reply. He said this, I am immortal until the will of God for me is accomplished. What a great perspective to have on life. And that's true of these two witnesses that we read of in verse 5. Friend, their ministry will not fall short of one day of those 
1,260 days or three and a half years. They will face unparalleled opposition. They will probably be the most hated preachers who have ever stood up to proclaim God's truth. And that's saying a lot. All the multiple assassination attempts, they will be divinely protected until their mission is complete. And you know what's good? That's also true of you and me. Our lives will not come one day short until the purpose that God has put us here on this planet has been fulfilled. Listen to me, the child of God doing the work of God in the will of God is invincible until God says, all right, your mission is done, come on home. Isn't that something that should build our faith today? The protection of the two witnesses. But then, notice here in verse 6, the plagues of the two witnesses. Verse 6 says this, They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So these preachers will come equipped with three supernatural weapons, drought and death and disease. And if you think about it, these judgments will have a cascading effect, one building upon another. The drought that they will bring will cause an ecological and economic disaster. Imagine the crops around Israel shriveling up, causing their agricultural industry to crash. Imagine the Sea of Galilee draining, the Jordan River being reduced to a mere trickle. Think about the cattle and the livestock dying of thirst. And then on the hills of drought will come widespread death. As the Bible tells, they'll have the ability to turn the water into blood. You think about that, being thirsty and going to the water tap and turning it on, and instead of crystal clear water coming out, it's red crimson, it's thick viscous blood coming out into your cup. Add to that all the diseases for which there will be no vaccine, no cure, and friend, you can understand very quickly as you read this passage that the mortuaries in Israel will not be able to handle the staggeringly high body count. That's the plagues of the two witnesses. But then notice in verse 7 the persecution of these two witnesses. Verse 7 says this, And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now as we read that passage, we see a symbolic picture given there of the beast. You should know that anytime the beast is used in Revelation, it describes the Antichrist. So we see that when these two witnesses have completed their mission on earth, that God removes His protective hand from them, and He allows them to be martyred, by the Antichrist. And as a way of desecrating them even further, nobody is allowed to give them a proper burial. They just lay in the middle of the street and rot like garbage. 
Listen to what David Jeremiah said about this passage. He said this. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, when the two witnesses have completed their divine mission, the beast will break his treaty with Israel and assassinate the two witnesses. And this murder will be his first celebrated act and gain him a large following. Notice here in our passage that John describes the holy city of Jerusalem in some insidious terms. He likens it to two of the most wicked cities in all of biblical history, Egypt and Sodom. Did you read that there in verse 8? What does that mean? It means that Egypt was notorious for enslaving the Jewish people for 400 years. They were under the boot of the Pharaoh until Moses came along and gave them freedom. And then Sodom, we know about that infamous city from the early books of the Bible, especially Genesis. And both of those nations were judged severely by God. In Egypt, they, were su- they had to suffer under ten plagues that God sent by way of Moses. And then Sodom was firestormed in Genesis 19. And so what the Bible is telling us here is that in the end times, Jerusalem will look illustrious. It will look like it's religious. It will have its temple. The people in the city will be going about their activities. The priesthood will be practicing. They will be making sacrifice. But it will all be a religious show. Because inwardly, spiritually, when God measures their hearts, He says, your hearts are like the people of Egypt. Your hearts are like the people of Sodom. And you read here further on in the passage and you get a window into the evil and the debauchery of this city. The death of these two witnesses is seen by the whole world and it's celebrated as a great thing. Interesting point here in verse 9, by the way, when we are told that peoples from all the tribes, languages, and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. Now, a generation or two ago, Many people read a verse like that, verse 9, and they scoffed at it. They said there's no way that everybody in the world, from every nation, kingdom, and tongue, could look upon such a scene. But today, friend, it's totally possible, and we understand it because of our social media and the internet and satellite television. Nobody snickers at that today because we read it and we say, Oh, I know how that can be fulfilled. In fact, Tim LaHaye, who's written a lot about the spiritual things of the end times, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but look at what he said. Ours is the first generation that can literally see the fulfillment of Revelation 11.9. In allowing the people of the entire world to see such a gruesome spectacle, this is one more indication that we are coming closer to the end of the age because it would have been humanly impossible just a few years ago. Friend, I'm telling you that this book is real, that this book is alive, and that this book foretells many mysteries and many things that are going to happen. As if the mocking display of the witness's body in the street wasn't enough, notice that they turned this occasion into some kind of sadistic holiday. Verse 10, Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice and make merry and exchange presents. We can understand this today, can't we? When you turn on the television and you see that the White House has been lit up in the colors of the LBGT flag, and people flood the streets and they celebrate 
the homosexual revolution taking place in our country. You can understand this when you see millions of people showing up in the streets of our cities to praise and laud Planned Parenthood and abortion. Is it striking to you that, that people today in our society have more compassion for a tree or a little minnow in a stream than they do a baby in the womb? So you read this passage and you, you can understand it today because you see how far our society has fallen. But by the way, as you read this passage, did you know this is the only rejoicing that takes place on the earth during the tribulation period? It's the only time from Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19 that any rejoicing happens on planet earth. And look at what they are praising. The death of God's preachers. One commentator, in fact, called this Hell's Christmas. <laughs> Where, of course, instead of celebrating the birth of Christ, they celebrate the death of God's servants. And he continued by saying that the secular symbol of Santa Claus will be replaced with that of the Antichrist. Interesting. Well, the story doesn't end there. We finish today with the preservation of the two witnesses. Notice how this finishes today, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell upon all those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. Watch this and gave glory to God in heaven. And the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe has come. So the public humiliation of these two witnesses is not the end. The three and a half days after their murder, while the world is partying, the Bible says that two miracles are going to occur that's going to stun the world. First off, we read in verse 11 about their rapture. Can you imagine the shock and awe that's going to come on the world scene when three and a half days as they have laid in the street, their body begins to stir? Oh, I guarantee you all the cameras of the media spotlight will be there. ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox News, CNN, they'll all have their cameras there. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report live from the streets of Jerusalem. Friends, a miracle is occurring. These men who have laid in the street for three days are starting to move again. Bible scholar John Phillips says this. Picture the scene. The sun-drenched streets of Jerusalem. The holiday crowds flown in from the ends of the earth for a first-hand look at the corpses of these detested men. The troops of the beast's uniforms, the temple police, they are there, devilish men from every kingdom under heaven, come to dance and feast over the triumph of the beast. And then it happens, as the crowd strain at the police barrier to peer curiously at the two dead bodies, there comes a sudden change. Their color changes from the cadaverous hue to the blooming rosy glow of youth. And those stiff, stark limbs, they bend and they move. And then they rise and levitate off the ground. And the ground splits as God's voice thunders from above. 
You just think Hollywood did really good with the Avengers movie and all the special effects that they've thrown in there. Friend, what's the world going to do when the special effects are real? You won't need to sell tickets to that thing. Their rapture, and then notice verse 13 and 14. We already read about it, their revenge. The Bible says at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people died. Those who would not allow the bodies of these witnesses to be buried will themselves be buried under the rubble of an earthquake. Now here's a sobering thought here. This devastating earthquake is just a harbinger of things to come. Friends, there's still seven more judgments left. Three and a half days of festivities are about to be followed by three and a half years of the worst time to ever be alive on planet earth. we still got three and a half years of tribulation left. As you read this passage, you probably think to yourself, well, gosh, preacher, that's all, that's great. I'm glad that I know that, but how does that affect me today in my life? How does that come to bear on my life tomorrow morning when I have to wake up and go to work and go to school? So what's the takeaway? What's the so what from this great scene? Well, there's at least two things, and I close with this. The first is this. These two witnesses are a reminder to you and I that even in the worst of times, God does not leave this world without a faithful remnant to testify to the truth. Even at the time of greatest wickedness and greatest rebellion, God is still merciful enough to send two preachers to this old hellish earth to say, hey, there's a Savior and you don't have to die in your sins and go to hell. You can be saved today. Think about it, friend. If you're a Christian today, it's because somebody at some point in your life was a faithful witness. Maybe it was a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, a parent. It may have been an absolute stranger who handed you a gospel track. But praise God that He has crossed our paths at some point in our past with a faithful witness who was bold enough to step out and say, I want to tell you about the love of my Jesus. You say, what's a witness? I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a Savior who can save anybody. That's what a witness is. And then the second application that we take away from this is what a stirring challenge to you and I to be faithful witnesses in the twisted and evil generation that we live in today. These witnesses we read of here were hated by the world. So hated that when they died, they threw a party. Listen to me, friend. The witness who boldly and fearlessly stands for Christ, listen, will never be popular in the world's eyes. Why is the church in America so consumed with being accepted and loved by the world? We're a square peg in a round hole. We're not made for this world. This world ain't our home. We're just passing through. Don't ever expect as a child of God, born again by the Spirit of God, to fit in with the world. You shouldn't want to. These men were faithful. 
They were hated. They were persecuted. And I'm not saying we wear that as a badge of honor. I'm just saying that if you live for Jesus and you speak the truth and you live for God, guess what? Jesus says, I bring a sword into the world. And God's standard, listen, God's standard will not be, were we successful? God's standard will be, were we faithful? Friend, I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than stand with the world and be judged by God. And so I finish with this. I thought about one faithful man who in his day stood like Latimer and Ridley. His name was Jim Elliott. He was one of the five missionaries that went in 1956 to try and reach the remote people, the Aka Indians. He landed there to deliver the gospel to them and he was murdered. He's 29 years old. His family picked up the mission after he left and they ended up leading thousands of Aka Indians to Christ. But his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, made a journal entry in her book, The Shadow of the Almighty, and she wrote down one of the last things that Jim Elliot penned in his diary. And I think this fits in so perfectly with this passage and what God has called us to be. He said this, Father, Make me a crisis man. Or you could say, make me a crisis woman. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a mile post on a single road, but make me a fork that men must turn one way or another upon facing Christ in me. What a great challenge that as you go out in the world, that you're a dividing point. And as people encounter you and encounter Christ, as they hear about the gospel, they must make a decision.